0: WELCOME TO THE MINISTRY OF FAITH COMMUNITY CHURCH OF INDIANAPOLIS. WE PRAY THIS MESSAGE BY PASTOR JOHN ROBERTS IS A BLESSING TO YOU. TO LEARN MORE ABOUT FAITH COMMUNITY CHURCH, PLEASE VISIT US AT FCCINDIANAPOLIS.COM WELL, WE'RE IN in, um, THE LAST PART OF JUDE. WE'RE GOING TO LOOK AT JUDE VERSE 24 AND 25 TODAY. I want to just go back real, real quick, just give a real general overview. Jude is a, an unusual little letter. It starts out with probably the greatest testimony of, of pretty much any of the gospel or the, the, the epistles, the writers of the epistle. And that's from Jude describing his relationship he had a natural relationship with Jesus. He was the half brother of Jesus, but he tells us that now, the whole basis of his relationship is he is a bond servant. He is a slave. Jesus is God, and I'm not. Jesus commands, and I obey. That's a, that, in essence. That's what a bond servant is: always listening for the master, and when the master says, "Do it," I do it. I don't question. I don't complain. I don't. I don't look for a different way. I just do it. Now, the the key to that is hearing the master. And I know I've heard people say, you know, I've heard some say in derision, "Oh, God speaks to you." My usual answer is, "You mean He doesn't speak to you?" Now, there have been a couple of occasions in my life where, uh, to me, it was a literal, um, audible voice. I turned around to see who was talking because. I could have sworn somebody was there. Other than those two times, it's either through his word, through an impression, through something that somebody else says that you just know. When, when they say it, man, it just hits you. It hits you more powerfully than, it, than some, someone, someone else saying something does. The, you know the, the, the cartoonist would have the little light bulb going off in your head over your head. Oh, I get it. That's God speaking, and that's exactly where Jude was. But then through from from um, that first section where, where Jude declares he's a bond servant, up to verse 24, Jude declares over and over and over again that we are in a fight, the fight of the ages. This we we are in the middle of a war. It started before um, we were ever created. Satan fell, rebelled against God before, I believe, before man, well, I do know, before mankind was created. And God's using mankind to prove to Satan how defeated he is. And seemingly, that was not a great idea. Because the first two he, he, he created fell. <laughs> That's not a very good start, you would think. But God knew they were going to fall before they fell, and he knew everything subsequent to that. And he used that to come into the world to redeem mankind and to enforce his will on the devil and all of the fallen angels and demons that went with the devil. And then that that brings us to the very end of this where finally um, Jude starts off on a good note and he's going to end on a good note. Verse 24, this is the New Living Translation. This is is, um, Jude speaking. He says, Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into His glorious presence without a single fault. Now that's good news. Now, I I like Barclay where where the the New Living says, um, glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away. Barclay translates that slipping. The the Greek word there literally is talking about, uh, there's two examples that they give when you look up the definition of that. One is is a horse who is sure-footed. I don't know if you've ever ridden much. I grew up with horses and, and rode every chance I could get even though our horses were, they were more mule than horse. But a horse will, it ha, most horses, let's put it that way, are very sure-footed. And until they, they have to stumble really bad before they will fall. Horses just do not fall a great deal. The only animal I've ever, ever seen that's more sure-footed, or if you ever watch films of uh, mountain goats, those things. I yeah, you know, I don't I don't know how God had to make a special creation for them, but that's what what Jude that word that's what Jude is using. He's saying God will keep you from falling or for for slipping away. You're going to be very sure-footed. It can also have the 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 picture of a mountaineer. If you've ever done any climbing, they, if if you're a novice as a climber, they almost always will pair you up with an experienced climber, and they tie a rope between you and the experienced climber and the novice. And if you fall, and and the, the purpose of that, even if you have two experienced climbers, they usually will rope you together. So that if one of you falls, the other's there to catch. That's the same when it says God is able to keep you from falling, to keep you from slipping. He's tied into you, which reminds me of, of the verse we read last week in James, where James, in James 4, James said, um, draw near to God, God will draw near to you. It's, it's our move. If we want to be hooked in and we, God is able... But we have to draw near to him to keep him from, to, to keep that, that rope tied securely. You stay away from him and stay away from him and avoid God. Don't read the word. You're going to get so far away that, that the, 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 the testimony of Christ and the power of Christ won't be available to you. Not because it's not there, but because you don't turn and ask for it, you don't turn and, and, and try to secure it. Because, well, James said it, we are like forgetful seers or hearers. We look into a mirror and we see our reflection and say, oh yeah, that's what I look like. And then we walk away and we forget what kind of man we are. And that's man, mankind. When you look into the Word, the Word says you're redeemed, you're holy, you're righteous, and you walk out. And you think, hmm, no, that's not me. I'm not holy. I'm not redeemed. I'm not righteous. I'm a pretty lousy Christian. Well, your behavior may not be up to where it needs to be, but you need to keep looking in the mirror. You need to keep looking in the Word to find out who you are. And then it says that that He will not only keep you from falling, but He'll bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Barclay, again, says that he will make you to stand blameless. Nothing, nothing showing up. Now, that's this statement, who is able, is, is used twice by the Apostle Paul. Once is in Romans 16, the very beginning of, of, of verse 25, where Paul says, "...now all glory to God, who is able to make you strong." Just as my good news says. Again, this making you strong, it, it has the idea of being stable, to render you constant, to, to hook you in, um, just like we just looked at it a minute ago in James 4.8, to hook you in with God so that when you slip, God picks you up. And He holds you steady. See, it's not, it's not my endurance that's important. It's His endurance. I'm going to fall. I'm going to slip. I'm going to sin. It's not, that's not a confession that I'm looking to maintain. It's just reality. We are still fallen creatures. On the inside, yes, I'm born again. I'm righteous. I'm holy. The, the Holy Spirit is perfectly united with my spirit. But my flesh, this physical body, still has the nature of sin and it will tempt me, and it will prod me. It will, if, if, if you go on a diet, it's going to say, well, you can't eat anything. And if you decide, well, I'm not, I'm not getting that restrictive, then it'll say, well, I want everything. I don't want a piece of cake, I want the pie, or the, the, the entire cake. I don't want a piece of pie, I want the whole pie. If you're going to eat, you know, the, the Lay's potato chip commercial from years ago, you can't eat just one. Well, I proved that right a thousand times. You better buy a small bag because once I eat one, I'm eating the entire bag. Now, if it's a small bag, I may quit. I may go back and get a second bag. But that's your flesh. Your flesh always wants to push you to extremes. Well, I need some rest. Okay, well, sit down. We'll get up in a month or two. You're really tired. You need to work out. I had a friend, and I, I, don't, I, I, I really almost count this a mental illness. He loved to run. He was a marathoner. He would say, well, you know, what are you going to do uh, this weekend? Oh, I'm going out on a 15-mile fun run. (laughs) Those two words don't go together. 15-mile run and fun, no. I'm sorry, not in any world that I live in are those two together. But he got so addicted to running that he started developing shin splints, which are basically tiny little fractures in in your tibia and he could not quit, he, not, not, let me rephrase that, he would not quit running to allow his legs to heal up to the point where finally the doctors had to put him in casts because they said your entire, your, that bone is going to break because you get enough tiny fractures, those fractures will finally connect to make a big fracture. And they said, you got a choice. I can put you in a cast and force you down or you can get down off and, you know, if you want to exercise, go swim. Get on a bike. Do something. He had to take a cast to quit. That's your flesh driving you. He derived pleasure out of running. Nothing wrong with running. But when you get to that state where you harm your body because you won't quit, then that's, that is the sin nature pushing you and pushing you and pushing you. But in, in, in this also when it says that, that uh, He will make you strong, that, that literally means that you will be stable. Well, how does He make me stable? Isaiah 33, 6 is the best example I've heard of that. And this is, again, a very familiar verse. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times, and the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord, is His treasure." It's the wisdom and knowledge, not just any wisdom or any knowledge. Remember, Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. This is not talking about getting college degrees, studying a subject, even without a degree, studying a subject until you become an expert at it. It's talking about knowing God and becoming wise in the things of God. That will bring you stability. And then the, the other place Paul uses this in his Ephesians, is in Ephesians 3.20, where he says, Now all glory to God, who is able through His mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Not only is God going to make a, promises to make us stable, keep us from, from, from falling away, to make us be able to stand faultless. But he says, I'm going to do it in a way that's infinitely better than you can even imagine. i got a pretty vivid imagination. I can imagine a lot of blessings. But he says, nope, you can't can't imagine anything near. In fact, that was in Ephesians 3. Earlier, man, it may be in it's in Ephesians two, where he says it's going to take eternity for him to reveal to us everything that he's provided for us in our salvation. Eternity. That means he's never. We're never going to get a complete grasp on how much he wants to bless us. He's going to keep adding to it for all eternity. Now that, I'll tell you, that makes my brain go tilt. It just shuts down. I can't, I, can't, I can't fathom that kind of blessing. But the Bible says it's true. But there again, back to Proverbs. Proverbs 9, verse 10, very beginning of that verse says, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Not fear in that I'm shaken and quaking, but fear in the sense that I bow my knee. You know, there was a, um, um, oh, I forget where it was now. It, it was in, in wartime, and it was a group of, of soldiers, and they were surrounded, they were overwhelmed. The, the enemy had more firepower than they did, and they all started saying, we need to surrender, we need to surrender. And one soldier stood up, and oh, I didn't, it was during the Spanish Civil War, during the, the early 30s. And, and one soldier stood up and he said, I'm not surrendering because I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. That's what the fear of the Lord is. I would rather be on my knees before God than on my knees before Satan or my circumstances. Because let's face it, if you bow before your circumstances, you are bowing before Satan because he's the one that's bringing those evil circumstances to try to knock you down. Amen. But as long as you kneel before God, He will strengthen you and keep you stable. This fight is is not just our fight. It's it's God's fight. That's why he tells us, 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul says it, fight the good fight of faith. Our our fight is a fight of faith. It's a fight that we take the word and believe God's word. We We are fighting the enemy in doing that. When the enemy says you are sick, and you say, "No, I'm not. I am well." That's not always easy to do. That's why I'll be honest with you. Um, um, it pays for for especially husbands and wives, because Paul says a, a wife does not have authority over her own body, and a husband does not have authority over his own body. Well. In context, when you read that, it's referring to sexual relations. But in principle, it means that when, when the enemy attacks my wife, I have just as much authority over her body as she does. And in, in, in practice, I have a lot more of, uh, effect because when you are the one that's being attacked and you are sick, man, sometimes it's just hard to stand. You feel bad. You are tired. You are weary. Your head hurts, your stomach hurts, whatever is going on with you. But your spouse, that's their body also, and they can stand in faith. It's easy for me to stand in faith for my wife because I don't feel the illness that she does. Now, that does not mean that I need to impose my faith on her. I need to go to the doctor, John. No, we're going to stand and believe. Okay, hotshot, do that when, you, when you're feeling bad. Not when, when a member of your family is feeling bad. And uh, we need to get past this idea that it's a lack of faith to go to the doctor. I'll be honest with you, I, the, most, the, the majority of the time that I was in Bible school and when we were in Broken Arrow, I worked at a hospital. And we, the, the floor I worked on, I was a clerk, We did back surgeries primarily. It was neurology and nephrology, which is kidneys. Everybody there was sick. I mean, some of them were just chronically sick, especially the kidney patients. And most of the kidney patients were diabetics, and they wouldn't control their blood sugar, and it destroyed their kidneys, and they went blind. But every one of those people, the doctors... Were normally more dedicated to getting these body people's bodies healed than the majority of the pastors that came to visit these people. Now that's a crime. We ought not, and thank God for dedicated doctors. I being a medical personnel and dealing with sick people all day, I don't know how they, I don't know how you do it. But would the God that we as believers had the dedication to see people walk in health that medical doctors and nurses do? Because we've got, doctors have lots of medicine, they've got lots of procedures, they've got lots of expertise, but we've got the Word of God. Much more powerful. But do we believe it? And even more so, do we enforce it? Now, with all of that, when it says that, that, that God... Will, will present you or bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault, that brings us to the, the climax, our hands towards the climax of the last battle, that last battle of Armageddon, the final battle that's going to sum everything up, and then we're going on into the millennial reign. Um, we, we skipped, and I'm, I'm surprised at you all, Nobody called me on this. We skipped verse 14 and 15. Did you all realize that in Jude? Never taught on it. But we're going to go back and catch it today because this is where it fits. And I'm, I'm going to lie and tell you I skipped it on purpose. God will, God will make things up. Jude 14 says this is, this is where Jude quotes the book of Enoch, which is a part of the pseudepigrapha, the, the book of Enoch as a whole. Uh, if you want to know how to, how to classify the pseudepigrapha, basically that means they're, they're, they were books that were written about God and they used some famous person's name. Some of them are very good for historic. Uh, the, the, the books of, there are, I think, three, four, I forget now, of Maccabees. You ought to read them. Boy, it'll tell is it four? They will tell you a lot about the history of, of how Israel came out of captivity. From from the 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 um, descendants or the rulers after Alexander the Great and what led up to right before the Romans came in gives you all the history of the Maccabee family and how they revolted we will tell you exactly why Jews celebrate Hanukkah all of that comes from the books of Maccabees but they're not um, they're not in the canon of Scripture Enoch isn't in the canon of Scripture either but. Jude quotes one particular passage out of the book of Enoch. So while while the entire book was not canonical, it wasn't God-inspired, this one little phrase was. That's why Jude picked it out, because Jude is part of the canon. But Jude says in, in verse 14, he says, Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. These are the people that that they had, we had... Uh, addressed right before verse 14 and this is what Enoch said listen the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy one that's us to execute judgment on the peoples of the world he will convict every person of all the ungodly things that they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him against God this is talking about right here the second coming of Christ. I'm not talking about the, the rapture of Christ. The reason I know that, he says the, the, that the Lord is coming with countless thousands of His holy ones. His holy ones are not talking about His angels. They're talking about believers. And it says that, that God is coming to execute judgment. When God comes in the rapture, He's not coming to execute judgment. He's coming to pull His children out of the earth right before he executes judgment. The the best picture of of the rapture of the church was uh, Noah and the ark. God, God told Noah 120 years before the rain started, you go build the ark. And for 120 years, Noah building the ark preached to the people around him. Judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. And then when the judgment came... Noah and his family were in the ark and they're only ones that made it through. Well, God's going to pull us out. He's not going to leave us behind to be judged with the world. So when, he, when this, is, this is coming after the seven years of the tribulation, when Jesus comes back, he comes back on a white horse and we come following him. And it's one of the greatest wars you'll ever see because not one of his army will ever raise a finger. Jesus is the only one that fights. And he's more than enough to take on the entire world and win. And we just come back to watch what he does. This is also mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. This is in, in John's vision in the book of Revelation. He says, look, he comes, that's referring to Jesus, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him. There again, that tells me that this is the, the second coming, not the rapture. At the rapture, the world is not aware that the rapture's happened until it's over. They don't see Jesus. He just comes and we get, we get uh, transformed and we're out of here. But he says in, in verse 7, he says, Everyone will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for Him. Yes, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, the End, says the Lord God, I am the One who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. That is Jesus saying, I started this, I'm going to finish it. I was around before time existed. I'm around in the middle of time, and I will be around when time ends. Time has no hold on me. I'm above time. And, and, and because he says that, the question for me comes, how is he, because remember, verse, verse um, 24 in Jude, going back there, it says that he will keep me from falling, and he'll bring me with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. How will he accomplish this? How will he bring me back with him with no faults? Because I'm telling you right now I got some faults. One, two, maybe. Y'all weren't supposed to laugh that loud or that quick. How does that happen? Well, here's how it happens. Go to Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty five through twenty-seven. This is in 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 particular, this is talking about husbands and wives in their relationship. And right before this, God is told, God through Paul said, wives submit to your husbands as to Christ. Now, boy, in this day and age, that'll get you some darts from the feminists. I'm not submitting to any man. I'm not putting any man above me. Well, we'll keep this one thought in mind. The father, at this point in history, the father has submitted himself to the rule of Jesus. Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus and the Father were one. I thought they were co-equal. You can only submit to an equal. You cannot submit to someone who is superior to you, a superior um, um, creation, or, or, or superior in quality. If I'm the master and you're the slave, it's because I am in a position and it may just be by law or by society, naturally speaking, you don't have a choice. You will bow your knee. And you will be my slave. But if we are equal, I can submit and come under your authority. So the act of submission says right off the bat, we are equal. You can only submit to an equal. That's why Jesus, the Father, has submitted the world to hand himself to Jesus now. And at some point when this all wraps up, Jesus will turn everything back and submit himself to the Father. Because they are equal. But also keep in mind when you read the verse 25 through 27, the husband's role, remember, Paul said, wives submit yourselves to your own husband. Nowhere in there does it say, husbands, make your wife submit. That's an impossible task. And the harder you try, the worse things will get. And it does not say, wives, make your husbands love you. Because you can't make someone love you. And the more you try, the worse it will get. We need to stay in our lane and deal with ourselves and our part in this. But notice that the submission comes and, and, and really puts the, the, the load on the man to love his wife. It's, it's a submission to someone who is loving and caring for you. Because remember, Paul also said, when, when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he said, if you are unequally yoked, he said, don't be unequally yoked. If you're getting married and you're a believer and they're not, don't marry. But he said, what if you come to Christ and you're already married and your spouse is, no longer a believer, is not a believer? You got saved and they didn't. He said, if they are pleased to dwell with you, stay with them. That's the key. And I'll give you a hint. Somebody who beats you, abuses you, curses at you, and I'm not just talking about has an occasional temper tantrum. Now, if the temper tantrum involves physical assault, you walk out or you kick them out, and you, and you stay separated until they can get that under control. But even consistent verbal and, and, and um, mental abuse, they're not pleased to dwell with you. Now, you can believe for them to get saved. Sometimes you may have to do that and say, Lord, I'm committing to live a cel- celibate life, but I'm divorcing that old dude. And I'm going to pray for him to get saved. And when he does, I'm going to approach him and say, now, you want to come back together? We'll get remarried. Or you just get out of the house and stay out until you get saved. And this behavior changes. But it's in that context that Ephesians 5.25 is written. He says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. That is... is, a calling to a life of, of servitude. You serve your wife. You serve your kids. doesn't make you the boss. doesn't make you the commander-in-chief and the dictator. It makes you the servant. Jesus said it. You want to be Lord of all? You've got to be servant of all. But verse 26 says, He did this. He gave up His life for us, the bride, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any other blemish. Indeed, she will be holy and without fault. Now, this is talking about the church at large. He's going to present himself with a spotless, blemishless, Holy Church. Now, let me ask you the question Are we there? Second question Can we get there? No, not in this life. So, when is he going to present himself with this spotless, wrinkleless church that has no faults at all? At the rapture. Because we leave our fleshly, sin-bound flesh behind. And we take on a supernatural uh, body that does not have the nature of sin. And at that point, we become spotless and wrinkled. And the proof of that is, for the body of Christ, if we are doing our job, we are seeing people born again. We are having babies and when is, when is a Christian at their worst as far as their behavior, hopefully, this should be the pattern, let's put it that way, is at their worst and still living like the world, even though they're holy and redeemed? It's usually right after they get born again. Because God doesn't necessarily change every habit and every sinful habit that you have the second you get born again. You are born a baby, and you have to learn. You have to grow up. Now, part of our problem is we, we've got, in the body of Christ, we've got some 40-year-old babies. We've never grown. I'll tell you, when, when I lived through what I call my hell years, I was born again at, at 8. I didn't get serious about being a, a Christian until I was about 28. So that 20 years in there, I really didn't serve God that well. Now, up to about 17, I did because, you know, from 8 to, to 16, <laughs> that's, there's just not a lot. Eight year olds don't have a lot of ill will, a lot of problems. But from 16, 17, till I really got serious and rededicated my life to God, in 20, and when I was about 28, oh, I was a foul sinner. My life didn't conform to God's will at all. Why? You want to know why? I was never taught. I saw Christians live what I consider to be holy lives, but nobody ever came to me as a child, as a teenager, and said, this is how you live this life. I never had anybody approach me and say, you need to read your Bible every day. That just my that my brain really does go tilt on that. How could I and I was at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and any other day that something was going on at church. Never once in that period. Now I heard lots of sermons on you're a filthy, rotten sinner, and if you're having problems, get down here and rededicate your life. And they and the, the pastor, every pastor I ever had as a child, was fishing real hard in their own in, in their own little bucket. And they got plenty of salvations, but most of them were people that that were saved. They just didn't know how to live. And they felt under condemnation. They felt like they weren't saved because they weren't living the right life. But it's because no one had showed them how to live the right life. But ultimately, we will be this spotless, blameless bride at the rapture. Because then our flesh is behind. We're not going to be tempted from within. And God will present us, and we're going off and have a high old time. For the seven years that the earth's being judged, we're having a banquet for seven straight years. That's what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians. Very familiar verses. Starting in chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First the believers who have died will rise from their graves... Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another with these words. You know, when you have the death of a family member, it can get discouraging. It's sad. You're not going to talk to them again for a long time, depending on how old you are, how old they were. But we can encourage ourselves but it's not over. If they were Christians and I'm a Christian, it's just so long, not goodbye. Amen? Now, this is a long passage, but I want to read it. This is, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 35, and we're going to read through verse 58. Because this talks about our bodies. This talks about what, what things are going to be like for us when we get that resurrected body. Verse 35 says, But someone may ask... How will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it a new body that He wants wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are other different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. This ought to tell you right here, and let me pause there. We'll come back to verse 40 in a second. Those that believe in universalism, in the end, God's going to save everybody, including the devil. It's a damnable heresy. This is part of the proof that it doesn't happen. Your body that you inherit, which is a resurrected body, only will come out according to how you planted it. And, and, and the, 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 the inner, most important part of the seed that you're planting is your spirit. Is your spirit one with Christ? If it is, your body's going to come out resurrected and like Christ's body. If you, when you plant that body, if the, their spirit is fallen, And sinful, they're going to come out with the same fleshly, sinful body they went into the ground with. And that's a horrible thought for me. It's why there's such a drive, should be such a drive for us to preach the gospel. Verse 40, there are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory while the moon and the stars have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted into the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are just like the earthly man. Heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What am I saying? Dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But... Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. Glory. I, I, I pray that I'm part of that group. And today's a good day. Fifty-two. It will happen in the moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God He gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. First part of verse 24 in Jude. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Jude promises us that he will make us to not be able to slip and he will present us holy and blameless, whether in this life at the rapture or ultimately if we die first, he'll bring our bodies out. And, and the great news is we get to go to a temporary home. And it's only, do you realize heaven's only temporary? It's not a permanent place. Heaven's going to be replaced. At the end of the millennial reign when, when, when Satan and all of the, the rebellious angels and all, all mankind that followed him are thrown into the lake of fire, then God will consume this universe with fire and make a new heaven and a new earth. And that will be our abode forever, for all eternity. And I'll give you a little hint. It says that, that the city of Jerusalem will be, t- 12, I think it's 12,000 miles cubed. You cannot have a, a, a structure 12,000 miles cubed. It can't exist in our universe. Its own gravity will force it into a sphere. So that tells me all the laws of physics get changed. Otherwise, it couldn't exist. Which means that boyhood dream that all you guys had, that you were going to be able to get up on your barn, put that Superman cape and leap off and fly, it's going to be a possibility. Dean, Dean will get to fly. I'll fly right alongside of him. Never had a lesson. We won't have to have a plane. Now that's flying. Now that brings us to verse 25, which we're going to close with. This is Jude, verse 25. All glory to Him who alone is God. Our Savior through Jesus Christ. You realize this is one of the few places, and there's more than one, but there are not a lot of them, where the Bible says that God the Father is our Savior. That ought to tell you. talk about the unity of the Spirit and the Son and the Father. They are all one. Jesus is our Savior. But this says that glory to Him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's talking about the Father being our Savior. That is the oneness of the Godhead. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Again, Jude is saying God existed before time began, during this period when we're living in time, and at the end, when the new heaven and the earth comes in, and there's no time, he will, he will be right in the thick of it. That's what eternity means. Not, not just that we have time that goes on forever. There won't be time. Now, I can't conceive of that. But it's also not just that there's no time. It's also the quality of life is eternal. That's why we will take all eternity to learn all of His blessings for us. And then it says, Amen. And this is, this is again, we, we looked at this earlier. This is repeated by John in Revelation 1.8, where Jesus said, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Says the Lord God, I am the one who is, who was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. That's our Lord. Jude gave us warning. He said, look, you need to be a bondservant. You need to be a slave to Christ. But these are the things you need to watch out for. And these kind of people, but especially that these people's attitude in yourself, because you still have the flesh to contend with, and you have to contend with it. And if you see it, you need to squash it out. Get back in the Word, read the Word, read the Word, pray, and let God empower you to stand. But in the end, it's not about me. It's not about my love for Him, it's about His love for me. His love for me makes me stand. Not my love for him. And he is well able. He finished out verse 8 there of Revelation 1 8. He said, The Almighty One. That's Jesus standing up and saying, And nobody bigger than me. Nobody. I'll whip all all comers. And he did, and is, and will. Amen. And the great news is, he's on our side. That's why Jeremiah 29, 11, 10 and 11 together. Even though we may be heading for captivity because of something we did wrong, it's just going to be for a little while, and He will deliver us out of that. And for us, we don't have a time period. For Israel, it was 70 years because they owed the land 70 years of, of, uh, of Sabbaths. For us, all we have to do is run to 1 John 1, 9. That's all our captivity has to run to. To the moment where we say, Lord, I did it. It was wrong. I've done it a gazillion times and I did it again. And I did it willingly. Forgive me. Now you have to be careful about willingly sinning and expecting to never pay a price. But once you recognize it, you can go to 1 John 1, nine, and not only will He forgive you, but He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you will stand before Him as if you never sinned. Amen? That's our promise. That's our God. And if that doesn't give you a hope, you need to to let Him fix your hope. Amen? Without hope, it's hard to survive. Really hard to survive without hope. He will give us hope. Amen? thank you so much for joining us today if this message has blessed you we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of highway 31 south and southport road indianapolis indiana or visit us online at fccindianapolis.com